When an oral promise has been made, however, the refusal to enforce it because it was not in writing effectively allows the promiser to perpetrate a fraud. Insisting on a writing may also violate expectations created in other ways. Courts have therefore recognized at least four ways in which easements may be created without being described in a writing complying with the statute of frauds. 1. Easements by estoppel may be found when a landowner grants the claimant permission to use the property, and the claimant so changes position in reasonable reliance on the continuation of the permission, that it would create substantial injustice to revoke it. 2. Easements by prescription are created through adverse and open use of the land continuously until the expiration of the statute of limitations for trespass. Jurisdictions vary on the kind of adversity and exclusivity required. See Chapter 5, Section 3. 3. Easements implied by prior use may be found when a parcel of land is divided or severed, and prior to severance one part of the estate used the other part of the estate, the use was obvious or apparent, and is reasonably necessary for enjoyment of the estate. 4. Easements by necessity may arise when an estate is severed and upon severance one part of the estate becomes landlocked, requiring a right-of-way over the other part of the severed estate to access a public road. What different interests are served by these diverse exceptions to the writing requirement? Although the four forms of implied easements may appear quite different, plaintiffs often raise more than one of these theories to support their claims. A. Easements by Estoppel Chief Justice Mary Malarkey delivered the opinion of the court. The history of this property rights controversy began before Colorado's statehood, at a time when southern Colorado was part of Mexico, at a time when all of the party's lands were part of the 1 million acre Sangre de Cristo grant, an 1844 Mexican land grant. Here, we determine access rights of the owners of farmlands in Costilla County to a mountainous parcel of land now known as the Taylor Ranch. As successors entitled to the original settlers in the region, the landowners exercised rights to enter and use the Taylor Ranch property for over 100 years until Jack Taylor fenced the land in 1960 and forcibly excluded them. These rights, they assert, derive from Mexican law and an express or implied grant and were impermissibly denied when the mountain land was fenced. In 1844, the governor of New Mexico granted two Mexican nationals a one million acre land grant, located mainly in present-day southern Colorado, Sangre de Cristo Lobato v. Taylor 71 P3D 938 Colo. 2002 and Bank. P. 538. Grant for the purpose of settlement. The original grantees died during the war between the United States and Mexico. The land was not settled in earnest until after the cessation of the war, and Charles Carlos Bobin then owned the grant. In 1848, the United States and Mexico entered into the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, ending the war between the two countries. Treaty of Peace, Friendship, Limits, and Settlement, Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, February 2, 1848, U.S. Max, 9 Stat, 922. Pursuant to the treaty, Mexico ceded land to the United States, including all of California, Nevada, and Utah, most of New Mexico and Arizona, and a portion of Colorado. The United States agreed to honor the existing property rights in the ceded territory. Congress confirmed Carlos Bobin's claim to the Sangre de Cristo grant in the 1860 Act of Confirmation, 12 Stat. 71, 1860. In the early 1850s, Bobin successfully recruited farm families to settle the Colorado portion of the Sangre de Cristo grant. 
He leased a portion of his land to the United States government to be used to establish Fort Massachusetts and recruited farmers to settle other areas. The settlement system he employed was common to Spain and Mexico. Strips of arable land called vara strips were allotted to families for farming, and areas not open for cultivation were available for common use. These common areas were used for grazing and recreation and as a source for timber, firewood, fish, and game. In 1863, Bobine gave established settlers deeds to their vara strips. That same year, Bobine executed and recorded a Spanish-language document that purports to grant rights of access to common lands to settlers on the Sangre de Cristo Grant Bobine document. In relevant part, this document guarantees that all the inhabitants will have enjoyment of benefits of pastures, water, firewood and timber, always taking care that one does not injure another. A year later, Bobine died. Pursuant to a prior oral agreement, his heir sold his interest in the Sangre de Cristo Grant to William Gilpin, who was Colorado's first territorial governor. The sales agreement Gilpin Agreement stated that Gilpin agreed to provide Vara Strip deeds to settlers who had not yet received them. The agreement further stated that Gilpin took the land on condition that certain settlement rights before then conceded to the residents of the settlements shall be confirmed by said William Gilpin as made by him. In 1960, Jack Taylor, a North Carolina lumberman, purchased roughly 77,000 acres of the Sangre de Cristo Grant mountain tract from a successor in interest to William Gilpin. Taylor's deed indicated that he took the land subject to claims of the local people by prescription or otherwise to right to pasture, wood, and lumber and so-called settlement rights in, to, and upon said land. Despite the language in Taylor's deed, he denied the local landowners access to his land and began to fence the property. The current case began in 1981. In that year a number of local landowners filed suit in Costilla County District Court. The landowners asserted that they had settlement rights to the Taylor Ranch and that Taylor had impermissibly denied those rights. After the trial, the court made a finding of fact that the landowners or their predecessors in title had grazed cattle and sheep, harvested timber, gathered firewood, p. 539. Fished, hunted and recreated on the land of the defendant from the 1800s to the date the land was acquired by the defendant, in 1960. The trial court further found that the community referred to Taylor Ranch as open range and that prior to 1960, the landowners were never denied access to the land. The court also stated that it did not dispute that the settlers could not have survived without use of the mountain area of the grant. Despite these findings, the court determined that the landowners had no rights in the Taylor Ranch, the Court of Appeals affirmed. The parties, at various points in the voluminous briefing of this 21-year-old litigation, agree that the rights at issue are most appropriately characterized as profits apprendra. A profit apprendra, in modern parlance, a profit, is an easement that confers the right to enter and remove timber, minerals, oil, gas, game, or other substances from land in the possession of another. Restatement 3rd, of Property, Servitude Section 1.2, 2, 1998, Hereinafter Restatement. Thus, a profit is a type of easement. An easement can be in gross or appurtenant. An easement in gross does not belong to an individual by virtue of her ownership of land, but rather as a personal right to use another's property. An easement appurtenant, on the other hand, runs with the land. It is meant to benefit the property, or an owner by virtue of her property ownership. An easement is presumed to be appurtenant, rather than in gross. In this case, the landowners allege that the settlement rights were to be used in connection with their land. 
They argue that the firewood was used to heat their homes, the timber to frame their adobe houses, and the grazing necessary to the viability of their farms. The landowners also assert that the settlement rights were granted to their predecessors in title by virtue of their interest in their vara strips and were in fact a necessary incentive for settlement in the area. We conclude that the rights the landowners are claiming are best characterized as easements appertenant to the land. We reach this conclusion from the evidence that under Mexican custom access to common land was given to surrounding landowners, the evidence that this access was used to benefit the use of the land, and the presumption in favor of appurtenant easements. b. Sources of the rights The landowners argue that their settlement rights stem from three sources, Mexican law, prescription, and an express or implied grant from Bobine. Regarding the Mexican law claim, the landowners claim that community rights to common lands not only are recognized by Mexican law, but also are integral to the settlement of an area. The landowners further point out that in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the United States government agreed that the land rights of the residents of the ceded territories would be inviolably respected. T. He landowners cannot claim rights under Mexican law. Their predecessors in title did not settle on the Sangre de Cristo grant until after the land was ceded to the United States and thus their use rights developed under United States law. Mexican land use and property law are highly relevant in this case in ascertaining the intentions of the parties involved, see infra. However, because the settlement of the grant p. 540 occurred after the land was ceded to the United States, we conclude that Mexican law cannot be a source of the landowner's claims. As evidence of a grant of rights from Carlos Bobin, the landowners rely primarily on the Bobin document. The document was written by Bobin in 1863, one year before his death. One English translation of the document reads, in part, Plaza of San Luis de la Culebra, May 11, 1863. It has been decided that the lands of the Rito Seco remain uncultivated for the benefit of the community members, gente, of the plazas of San Luis, San Pablo and Los Balejos and for the other inhabitants of these plazas. The Vega, after the measurement of three acres from it in front of the chapel, to which they have been donated, will remain for the benefit of the inhabitants of this plaza and those of the Culebra as far as above the plaza of Los Balejos. Dot. Those below the road as far as the narrows will have the right to enjoy the same benefit. No one may place any obstacle or obstruction to anyone in the enjoyment of his legitimate rights. Likewise, each one should take scrupulous care in the use of water without causing damage with it to his neighbors nor to anyone. According to the corresponding rule, all the inhabitants will have enjoyment of benefits of pastures, water, firewood and timber, always taking care that one does not injure another. Emphases added. We agree that the Bobine document does not meet the formal requirements for an express grant of rights. However, we find that the document, when taken together with the other unique facts of this case, establishes a prescriptive easement, an easement by estoppel, and an easement from prior use. A court can imply an easement created by estoppel when one, the owner of the Serbian estate, permitted another to use that land under circumstances in which it was reasonable to foresee that the user would substantially change position believing that the permission would not be revoked, two, the user substantially changed position in reasonable reliance on that belief, and three, injustice can be avoided only by establishment of a servitude. Whether reliance is justified depends upon the nature of the transaction, including the sophistication of the parties. An easement implied from prior use is created when 1. The servient and dominant estates were once under common ownership, 2. The rights alleged were exercised prior to the severance of the estate, 3. 
The use was not merely temporary, for the continuation of this use was reasonably necessary to the enjoyment of the parcel, and five, a contrary intention is neither expressed nor implied. The rationale for this servitude is as follows. The rule stated in this section is not based solely on the presumed actual intent of the parties. It furthers the policy of protecting reasonable expectations, as well as actual intent, of parties to land transactions. Restatement, Supra, Section 2.12 CMT. A. T. He Court of Appeals in this case rejected the landowner's claims of an implied easement, finding that, although easements in the form of access rights could be implied, easements in the form of profits could not. Although this court has not addressed implied profits for over 35 years, there is a modern trend to apply the same rules to easements of access and to profits. The restatement explains that, although some profits such as mineral and water rights have specific rules, generally as between easements in the form of access rights and easements in the form of profits, there are no doctrinal differences between them. Restatement, Supra, Section 1.2 Reporter's Note. Easements and profits are treated equally because the same public policy and practical considerations that underlie implied rights of access also underlie implied profits. A recognition that parties do not always comply with strict rules of express conveyance, a desire to effectuate the intent of the parties, and the aim of fairness apply equally to easements and profits. I. Prescriptive easement because Taylor's deed indicates that Taylor's ownership of the land is subject to the landowners. Prescriptive rights, we begin with an application of the law of prescriptive easements. The court found that the plaintiffs had established a prescriptive easement under the theory that a continuous use under an intended but ineffective grant is adverse. Easements by prescription are discussed more fully in Chapter 5, Section 3, E. Easement by estoppel The landowners have established every element of an easement by estoppel. First, Taylor's predecessors in title permitted the settlers to use the land under circumstances in which it was reasonable to foresee that the settlers would substantially change position believing that the permission would not be revoked. Restatement, Supra, Section 2.10. The settlers' reliance was reasonable because rights were expected, intended, and necessary. It was expected because of the Mexican settlement system discussed above. Also discussed above, this settlement system, combined with the actual practices and the deeds associated with the Taylor Ranch, showed that rights were intended. The rights were also necessary. The plaintiff's expert, Dr. Marianne Stoller, testified that access to wood was necessary to heat homes, access to timber was necessary to build homes, and access to grazing was necessary for maintaining livestock. The second element, that the user substantially change position in reasonable reliance on the belief, is easily found. The landowner's predecessors in title settled Bobine's grant for him. They moved onto the land and established permanent farms. The third element, the avoidance of injustice, is also undeniably present. The original Sangre de Cristo grant was given on the condition that it be settled. Indeed, under Mexican law, the grant would have been revoked if settlement did not succeed. The settlers then fulfilled the condition of the grant that made Bobine fee owner of 1 million acres of land. P. 541. Bobine attracted settlers to the area by convincing them that he would provide them with the rights they needed for survival. Bobine knew that families would rely on his promises and leave their homes to travel hundreds of miles on foot or horseback to establish new homes. A condition of the conveyance of Bobine's land, from Gilpin down to Taylor, was that the owner honor these rights. 
Although these promised rights were exercised for over 100 years, although these rights were necessary to the settlers' very existence, and although Taylor had ample notice of these rights, Taylor fenced his land over 40 years ago. It is an understatement to say that this is an injustice. The landowners have established each element of an easement by estoppel. E. Easement from prior use Lastly, every element of an easement from prior use has been shown. First, both Taylor's and the landowner's lands were originally under the common ownership of Bobine who owned the entire Sangre de Cristo grant before settlement. Second, the rights were exercised prior to the severance of the estate. As discussed above, many of the rights the landowners claim were needed and expected for life in the San Luis Valley. This necessity existed from the first days of settlement, indicating that these rights were exercised prior to severance of title. The third and fourth prongs, that the use was not merely temporary and is reasonably necessary to the enjoyment of the land, are also easily established. The trial court's findings of fact established that the rights were exercised from the time of settlement until Taylor came on the scene. Moreover, as discussed above, the rights were reasonably necessary. Lastly, no contrary intention is expressed or implied, thus, the fifth element is present. Custom, expectation, practice, and language in the documents and deeds surrounding the Taylor Ranch property indicate not only that a contrary intention did not exist, but that the parties affirmatively intended for these rights to exist. All five elements of an easement from prior use have been established c extent of the rights having found that the landowners have implied profits in the taylor ranch we now must address the scope of those rights we imply the rights memorialized in the bobine document accordingly we hold that the landowners have implied rights in taylor's land for the access detailed in the bobine document pasture firewood and timber these easements should be limited to reasonable use the grazing access is limited to a reasonable number of livestock given the size of the vara strips the firewood limited to that needed for each residence and the timber limited to that needed to construct and maintain residence and farm buildings located on the vara strips we reject the landowners claims for hunting fishing and recreation p 542 justice alex martinez dissenting only as to part 2 c T. His case involves the settlement rights of people who have been largely dispossessed of their rights in land when Taylor fenced the property. There is little dispute that the settlers enjoyed extensive rights in the lands that comprise the Taylor Ranch for about 100 years. Rather, the dispute concerns the extent of the rights, if any, that survive when we construe settlement rights conceived in a different era pursuant to contemporary standards. In short, the difficulty of this case is that we must address the grave injustices imposed upon the settlers' successors in interest by interpreting documents from a different era, intended to reflect Bobine's intent through the perspective of modern property law. Nonetheless, equitable principles in our modern jurisprudence, properly construed and applied, permit us to recognize the rights of the settlers and their successors in interest. I would apply the reasoning of the majority opinion to conclude that the landowners have also established access rights for fishing, hunting, and recreation. The trial court made strong findings that t. he plaintiff's predecessors in title grazed cattle and sheep, harvested timber, gathered firewood, fished, hunted and recreated on the land of the defendant from the 1800s to the date the land was acquired by the defendant, in 1960. 
The trial court also found that prior to 1960 when Taylor fenced the land, the landowners referred to that land as open range and that the landowners were never denied access to the land for grazing of cattle, sheep, harvesting timber, gathering firewood, fishing, hunting, or recreating. My review of the record reveals that the trial court's findings of fact that fishing, hunting, and recreation were included in the settlement rights contemplated by the Bobine document are correct. Justice Rebecca Love K.O.U.R.L.I.S. Descending Although I have great sympathy for the historic and present plight of the landowners in this action, I cannot support the majority opinion for two reasons. First, it is my view that in 1863 Charles Bobine attempted to make a community grant for the benefit of the inhabitants of the plazas of San Luis, San Pablo, and Los Vallejos. The law in effect at the time did not recognize such a grant and instead required individual identification of grantees. Hence, the Bobine document had no legal effect. There were two types of grants of land from the government of Mexico, private grants to individuals who would own the land and who could sell it after they met a requirement of establishing possession of the land, and community grants. Point six In 1863, the year Charles Bobine executed the Bobine document, under Colorado territorial law, a document conveying any interest in real estate had to meet several formal requirements, including the requirements that it incorporate an accurate description of the property and the names of the grantees. T, he Christian and surnames of the grantees and an accurate description of the premises or the interest in the premises intended to be conveyed and shall be subscribed by the party or parties making the same and be duly proved or acknowledged before some officer authorized to take the proof or acknowledgement of deeds or by his her or their attorney in fact. P 543. Elements of easements by estoppel territorial laws of Colo. First says, an act concerning conveyances of real estate, 64, 64, section 2, 1861. The requirement that the document identify grantees by name is indicative of the territorial legislature's overt decision not to honor community grants that fail to mention specific grantees. The Bobine document flatly fails to meet that requirement. The Bobine document does not give the Christian and surnames of the grantees, instead only referring generally to the community members and inhabitants of specified villages. T. He Bobine document, like every other real property transfer, must be held to the standards of the law in effect at the time it was executed in order to protect the certainty and marketability of property interests. The document does not comport with those laws, and it therefore, has no validity as to the landowners here. The document intended to create a grant to the members of a community, such a grant was in contravention of the applicable statutes and was, therefore, invalid. I would also decline to apply principles of easement by estoppel, because there is no showing here of misrepresentation or concealment of material facts by Bobine or any of his successors in interest. There has been no showing in this case that Bobine or Gilpin either misrepresented material facts or intended the landowners to rely to their detriment upon a parole agreement. Indeed, to my knowledge, the only context in which such a doctrine has been applied to the acquisition of easements has involved ditches and ditch rights, an area in which rights are so firmly entrenched as to be included within the Colorado Constitution. Notes and Questions 1. Background and Aftermath. Lobato v. Taylor illustrates the power of running with the land. Here, rights allegedly acquired in the 1800s are found to pass down through several owners of the Servian estate, the mountain tract and generations of owners of the dominant estate, the Costilla County residents, to still exist in 2002. 
The immediate conflict leading to Lobato v. Taylor began in 1960, when a North Carolina lumberman, Jack Taylor, purchased the 77,000-acre mountain tract for what he considered the bargain price of $500,000. Although the sellers warned him of the practices of the Costilla County residents, he enclosed it in barbed wire, hired guards to patrol the area, and confiscated rifles and other equipment from those he found on the land. Taylor also immediately filed a lawsuit seeking a judicial declaration that he had title to the land free from any other claims. Relying on diversity jurisdiction, he filed the action in federal district court some 200 miles away from the county. The federal court found for Taylor, holding that any rights that the county residents might have had under Mexican law were extinguished. Sanchez v. Taylor, 377F2D733, 10th CIR. 1967. The dispute continued, fueled in part by resentment of Taylor's attitude, evidenced by television interviews in which Taylor dismissed the Latino county residents' opposition as the result of an inferiority complex. They know they're not equal, mentally or p. 544. Physically to a white man, and that's why they stick together so. Calvin Trillin, U.S. Journal, Costilla County, A Little Cloud on the Title, The New Yorker 122, 128, April 26, 1976. The federal judgment would usually have barred the later state action, but the Colorado Supreme Court found that Taylor failed to provide the Costilla residents with adequate notice, as he had served them only by publication of the federal action. Lobato v. Taylor, 70p3d1152, colo. 2003. After remand, the Colorado Supreme Court held that the easement rights belonged to any resident who could trace title to the land of the original settlers under Bobine. 2. Communal land grants. Although the majority holds that the Bobine grant was not legally effective in itself, it relies on the grant in finding that the plaintiffs had easements by estoppel. Justice Corliss argues in dissent that the grant did not simply fail to comply with formalities, instead, it attempted to create a communal property right, something recognized under Mexican law but deliberately prohibited by the new Colorado Territory. Why might Colorado have forbidden the communal land grant system? If Justice Corliss was correct that the territory did forbid communal land grants, what effect should that have on the recognition of informally created easements today? 3. Easements by estoppel. Easements by estoppel may be found in three different kinds of circumstances. Some courts may apply the doctrine to only some of these circumstances, some may even reject the doctrine entirely, rigidly enforcing the statute of frauds in this context. See Kitchen v. Kitchen, 641 N.W. 2D. 245, Mish. 2002. A. Noncompliance with the statute of frauds. In the first circumstance, the parties intended to create an easement but failed to comply with the requisite formalities, such as a writing, seal, or adequate description of the property. If the claimant substantially invested in reasonable reliance on the agreement, courts may find an easement by estoppel. Restatement 3rd, Section 2.09, C. E. G. Kluger v. Cubic, 954 A2D262, Con. App Court, 2008. Plaintiff and defendant walked property line and agreed on location of new driveway before defendant built driveway running over plaintiff's property. This is consistent with the general equitable exception to the statute of frauds. In the absence of a writing, however, it is often difficult to determine whether the parties intended to create a permanent easement or a temporary license, so cases often turn on one of the other grounds for estoppel. b. 
reasonable reliance on continuation of consent. Courts also sometimes find estoppel even in the absence of proof of the grantor's intent to create an easement when the owner or occupier permitted another to use that land under circumstances in which it was reasonable to foresee that the user would substantially change position believing that the permission would not be revoked, and the user did substantially change position in reasonable reliance on that belief. Restatement 3rd, Section 2.101 the permission may either be express or implicit from acquiescence in the continued use. Permission from the owner to use the land, 1. Foreseeable and reasonable reliance on continuation of the permission, 2. Changed position by the claimant, usually through significant expenditures. In reliance on continuation, and 3. Finding an easement is necessary to prevent injustice. 4. P. 545. In Holbrook v. Taylor, 532 SW2D 763 KY. 1976, for example, the alleged easement, an old mine road, was the only existing road to the Appleys property. The Appleys regraded the road, transported construction materials along it, and built their home in reliance on permission to use the road. Although there was no proof of express consent by the owner of the Serbian estate, the court found that an irrevocable easement by estoppel had been created. I.D. See also Cleaver v. Kundiv, 203 SW 3D 373 Tex. App. 2006 Finding the jury could reasonably infer that the Armstrongs would not have built their house without some reliable means of access and would not have expended time and money maintaining a road over which they had no claim. In contrast, the main Supreme Court found that a claimant simply had a temporary license to allow transportation of construction materials, even though the claimant paid to pave the turnaround, and building a driveway to the public road over the claimant's own property would be very difficult. Woods v. Libby, 635A2D 960, meet 1993. C. Fraud or Misrepresentation Some courts will only find an easement by estoppel when there has been fraud or misrepresentation about the existence of or intent to grant an easement. See Flag v. Graham, 983 P2D 396 Mont. 1999, no easement by estoppel where parties jointly invested in building and maintaining well based upon mistaken belief that it was on their common boundary. Jones v. Stamper, 297 SW 3D 73, 77 KY. Court, App 2009. No easement by estoppel after landowner's death although neighbors paid landowner $500 for agreement that they could access the highway over his land and then paid to construct a road over the land. This was the position Justice Corliss advocated in dissent in Lobato v. Taylor. Even in jurisdictions where fraud is not a necessary element of the claim, fraud plus investment in reliance on the fraud is an alternate ground for finding an easement by estoppel. See Restatement 3rd, Section 2.102. Other courts find that letting an individual substantially invest in reliance on a reasonable belief that the permission to enter the land will be permanent is itself a kind of fraud. In Stoner v. Zucker 83 p. 808 Cal. 1906, for example, plaintiff granted defendant a revocable license to enter plaintiff's property to construct a ditch for carrying water. Defendant constructed the ditch at the expense of $7,000, about $180,000 in today's dollars. The court found that it would countenance a fraud to allow the plaintiff to revoke permission to use the ditch, ID, at 809 to 810. In contrast, Harbor v. Jensen, 97 P3D 57, WYO, 
2004, held that expenditures in reliance on unwritten permission extending over 70 years was not evidence of fraud where the owners, the children of the original licensees, did not seek express permission and the defendants did not know that the expenditures were being made. Can you distinguish these cases? 4. Constructive trust. Rights to use land titled in another may also be created through a constructive trust. An express trust is an arrangement in which one person or entity, the trustee, has title to some property for the express benefit of another, the beneficiary. A constructive trust, in contrast, is an equitable exception to the statute of frauds. It may be found when legal title to property has been obtained through actual fraud, misrepresentations, concealments, taking advantage of one's necessities, or under circumstances otherwise rendering it unconscionable for the holder of legal title to p. 546. Retain beneficial interest in property. Snyder v. Arnold, 289 P3D43, Idaho 2012, finding constructive trust on cabin permitted in brother's name in favor of sister, Goggin v. Goggin, 267 P3D885, 892, Utah 2011, imposing constructive trust on horse farm titled in ex-husband's name that ex-wife had helped to develop under understanding of partnership. In Rays v. Castle Mountain Ranch, Inc., 631 P2D 680, Mont. 1981, for example, the court imposed a constructive trust in favor of individuals who had built cabins and summer cottages and used them for over 50 years with the written license from the ranch owner, who wanted company and extra security but did not want to sell title to the land because of concerns about water rights. When the ranch was sold, the purchaser asked the rancher to terminate the licenses, and he refused. The new owner then immediately notified the cabin owners that their licenses were terminated. The court found that the new owner, given its knowledge of the semi-permanent nature of the cabin owner's license, engaged in fraud in buying the land then terminating the cabin owner's rights. It imposed a constructive trust on the land in favor of the cabin owners, but only for 15 years after the sale. Problem in 1860, Peter Feely purchased a family burial plot in Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Under existing law, the purchase of a burial plot in a cemetery owned by another was an easement for burial of one's dead. The purchase agreement was not impressed with a seal, which was necessary to create a formal easement under the statute of frauds at the time. Peter Feely buried a child in the plot in 1860, and his wife there in 1898. After Mr. Feely's death in 1904, the superintendent of the cemetery opened Mrs. Feely's grave to ascertain who was in there, and then, finding that the grave was not deep enough to bury Mr. Feely as well, flattened down Mrs. Feely's casket and bones to make room. The Feely's surviving children learned about this after they found a plate that the superintendent had removed from their mother's grave and left lying on the ground. They brought a trespass action against the superintendent of the cemetery. Because licenses cannot give rise to an action for trespass and cannot usually be inherited, to succeed they had to show that Mr. Feely had a burial easement in the plot. What exceptions to the statute of frauds for easements could they assert? Should they succeed? Facts, but not solution, taken from Feely v. Andrews, 77 NE 766, Mass. 1906. B. Easements implied from prior use map, area between Rue des Chateaux and S. Prairie Street and E. Bethalto Drive, Bethalto, Illinois, this URL. 
B equals 2 and CP equals 38.900219 approximately minus 90.040466 and LVL equals 16 and DIR equals 0 and STI equals H and Q equals S percent 20 prairie percent 20th street percent 20 percent 26 percent 20 E percent 20 Bethalto percent 20 P 547 granite properties limited partnership V bands 512 NE2D12 30, Ill, 1987. Justice Howard C. Ryan delivered the opinion of the court. The plaintiff, Granite Properties Limited Partnership, brought this suit in the Circuit Court of Madison County, seeking to permanently enjoin the defendants, Larry and Ann Mance, from interfering with the plaintiff's use and enjoyment of two claimed easements over driveways which exist on the defendant's property. One driveway provides ingress to and egress from an apartment complex and the other to a shopping center. Both the apartment complex and the shopping center are situated on the plaintiff's property. As indicated in the map above, the parcels which are the subject of this appeal are adjoining tracts located to the south of Bethalto Drive and to the north of Rue des Chateaux Street in Bethalto, Illinois. The plaintiff and its predecessors in title owned all of the subject properties from 1963 or 1964 until 1982, at which time the parcel labeled B was conveyed by warranty deed to the defendants. The plaintiff currently owns the parcels labeled A and E, which are on the opposite sides of parcel B. The shopping center situated on the parcel designated A extends from lot line to lot line across the east-west dimension of that property. To the north of the shopping center is an asphalt parking lot with approximately 191 feet of frontage on Bethalto Drive. To the east of the shopping center on the parcel P, 548. Labeled D is a separately owned health club. To the south of Parcela on the parcel denominated C are five four-family apartment buildings. The distance between the back of the shopping center and the property line of Parcel C is 50 feet. The shopping center's underground utility facilities are located in this area. An apartment complex, known as the Chateau des Fleurs Apartments, is located on the parcel labeled E. Both of the plaintiff's properties were developed prior to the time parcel B was sold to the defendants. Parcel B remains undeveloped. The first claimed easement provides access to the rear of the shopping center which is located on parcel A. The center, which was built in 1967, contains several businesses, including a grocery store, a pharmacy, and doctor's offices. The rear of the center is used for deliveries, trash storage and removal, and utilities repair. To gain access to the rear of the shopping center for these purposes, trucks use a gravel driveway which runs along the lot line between Parcel A and Parcel B. A second driveway, located to the east of the shopping center on Parcel D, enables the trucks to circle the shopping center without having to turn around in the limited space behind the stores. Robert Mahan, the owner of the Save A Lot grocery store located in the shopping center, testified on direct examination that groceries, which are delivered to the rear of the store, are loaded by forklift on a concrete pad poured for that purpose. Mahan indicated that there are large double steel doors in the back of the store to accommodate items which will not fit through the front door. Mahan testified that semi-trailer trucks make deliveries to the rear of the grocery store four days a week, with as many as two or three such trucks arriving daily. An average of 10 to 12 trucks a day, including semi-trailer trucks, make deliveries to the grocery store. 
Mahan further explained on direct examination that because the area behind the Save A Lot building extends only 50 feet to the rear property line, it would be difficult, if not impossible, for a semi-trailer truck to turn around in the back and exit the same way it came in. In response to a question as to whether it would be feasible to have trucks make front door deliveries, Mahan suggested that such deliveries would be very disruptive. Pallets that would not fit through the front door would have to be broken down into parts, requiring extra work, and there would not be adequate space in the front of the store to do such work during business hours. Mahan admitted on cross-examination that he had not investigated the cost of installing a front door which would be big enough for pallets of groceries to be brought in by forklift. Further cross-examination revealed that there would not be enough space to manipulate the forklift around the front of the store, although it could be run between the shelves of food to the back of the store. Also called as a witness for Granite Properties Limited Partnership was Daryl Lehman, a limited partner. Lehman noted that the shopping center had been in continuous operation since 1967 and that the pattern for deliveries had always been to the rear of the individual stores. When asked whether he had ever seen a semi back up in the rear of the shopping center and go out the way it came in, Lehman responded, that would be impossible. On cross-examination, however, Lehman admitted that, although it was very difficult, he had seen semi-trailer trucks exit the same way they came in. Lehman also acknowledged on cross-examination that he had not investigated the cost of expanding the size of the front doors of the building. He also claimed that it would seem impossible to him to put in any kind of a hallway or passageway which would allow equipment to bring supplies into the stores from the front. On redirect examination, Lehman explained that the delivery trucks follow no set schedule and, therefore, their presence may overlap at times. He stated that he had seen as many as four or five delivery trucks backed up. Lehman opined that there was no way the trucks could back up and turn around when there were multiple trucks present. P. 549. The other claimed easement concerns ingress and egress over a driveway which leads into the parking area of the apartment complex situated on Parcel E. The complex, which was erected in the 1960s prior to the conveyance of Parcel B to the defendants, consists of three buildings containing 36 units. The parking lot, which is situated to the rear of the buildings, provides 72 parking spaces. The only access to the parking lot is by a driveway from Rue des Chateaux, a public street located to the south of the properties. The driveway, which cuts across a small panhandle on the southwestern corner of Parcel B, has been in existence since the apartment complex was constructed. The terrain around the apartment complex is flat, including the area in front of the buildings along Prairie Street to the west. Limited partner Daryl Lehman testified at trial that if the area in front of the apartment complex, measuring 300 feet along Prairie Street and 30 feet deep, were to be converted into a parking lot, then there would be room for only 30 parking spaces. He admitted on direct examination that he had not investigated the cost of rocking or asphalting this area for that purpose. Although there was a distance of 20 feet between the apartment buildings, Lehman opined that it would not be enough usable space. To accommodate a driveway from Prairie Street to the existing parking lot because such driveway would interfere with stairways which lead to the basement apartments. Although he admitted that he did not investigate the cost of installing a driveway either between the buildings or adjacent to the end building on the north, Lehman concluded that based on his experience in the layout and design of apartment buildings, it would be a dangerous situation for the tenants of the apartments if a driveway were to be run between the buildings or next to their sides. 
Lehman concluded his testimony by claiming that the plaintiff was unaware of any easement problems as to the driveways in question at the time parcel B was deeded to the defendants, otherwise, he asserted, it would not have been deeded. The defendant, Larry Manns, stated that he purchased parcel B from the plaintiff in the summer of 1982. Shortly afterwards, he had a survey made of the property. The survey indicated possible encroachments by the plaintiff as to the driveways in question. Finding no recorded easements following a title search, Mann stated that he notified the plaintiff to discontinue its use of the driveways. On cross-examination, Manns admitted that he saw the two driveways before he bought the subject property. The plaintiff contends in this court that it acquired, by implied reservation, easements over the driveways which provide access to the rear of the shopping center located on Parcel A and to the parking lot of the apartment complex situated on Parcel E. Plaintiff alleges that Parcels A, B and E were held in common ownership by the plaintiff and its predecessors in title until 1982, at which time the defendants received a warranty deed to Parcel B, that the driveways in question were apparent and obvious, permanent, and subject to continuous, uninterrupted and actual use by the plaintiff and its predecessors in title until the time of severance of unity of ownership. And that the driveways are highly convenient and reasonably necessary for the beneficial use and enjoyment of the shopping center and the apartment complex. Therefore, the plaintiff maintains that, upon severance of unity of title, the defendants took parcel B subject to the servitudes then existing, as the parties are presumed to convey with reference to the existing conditions of the property. On the merits, the crucial issue is whether, in conveying that portion of its property now owned by the defendants, Parcel B, the plaintiff retained easements by implication over the driveways in question. P. 550p. 551. There are two types of implied easements, the easement by necessity and the easement implied from a pre-existing use. The easement by necessity usually arises when an owner of land conveys to another an inner portion thereof, which is entirely surrounded by lands owned either by the grantor or the grantor plus strangers. Unless a contrary intent is manifested, the grantee is found to have a right of way across the retained land of the grantor for ingress to, and egress from, the landlocked parcel. Similarly, an easement is implied by way of necessity in the deed when the owner of lands retains the inner portion, conveying to another the balance. The easement implied from a prior existing use, often characterized as a quasi-easement, arises when an owner of an entire tract of land or of two or more adjoining parcels, after employing a part thereof so that one part of the tract or one parcel derives from another a benefit or advantage of an apparent, continuous, and permanent nature, conveys or transfers part of the property without mention being made of these incidental uses. In the absence of an expressed agreement to the contrary, the conveyance or transfer imparts a grant of property with all the benefits and burdens which existed at the time of the conveyance of the transfer, even though such grant is not reserved or specified in the deed. This court has stated on numerous occasions that an easement implied from a pre-existing use is established by proof of three elements, first, common ownership of the claimed dominant and servient parcels and a subsequent conveyance or transfer separating that ownership, second, before the conveyance or transfer severing the unity of title, the common owner used part of the united parcel for the benefit of another part, and this use was apparent and obvious, continuous, and permanent, and third, the claimed easement is necessary and beneficial to the enjoyment of the parcel conveyed or retained by the grantor or transferor. As the above discussion indicates, easements created by implication arise as an inference of the intention of the parties to a conveyance of land. 
This inference, which is drawn from the circumstances surrounding the conveyance alone, represents an attempt to ascribe an intention to parties who had not thought or had not bothered to put the intention into words, or to parties who actually had formed no intention conscious to themselves. To fill these common gaps resulting in incomplete thought, courts find particular facts suggestive of intent on the part of the parties to a conveyance. In the case of an easement implied from a pre-existing use, proof of the prior use is evidence that the parties probably intended an easement, on the presumption that the grantor and the grantee would have intended to continue an important or necessary use of the land known to them that was apparently continuous and permanent in its nature. Where an easement by necessity is claimed, however, there is no requirement of proof of a known existing use from which to draw the inference of intention. This leaves proof of necessity alone to furnish the probable inference of intention, on the presumption that the grantor and the grantee do not intend to render the land unfit for occupancy. This essentially is the position taken by the Restatement of Property Section 474, 1944. The restatement operates on the basis of eight important circumstances from which the inference of intention to create or reserve an easement may be drawn, whether the claimant is the conveyor or the conveyee, the terms of the conveyance, the consideration given for it, whether the claim is made against a simultaneous conveyee, the extent of necessity of the easement to the claimant, whether reciprocal benefits result to the conveyor and the conveyee, the manner in which the land was used prior to its conveyance, and the extent to which the manner of prior use was or might have been known to the parties. Restatement of Property Section 476, 1944. These eight factors vary in their importance and relevance according to whether the claimed easement originates out of necessity or for another reason. P. 552. In applying the restatement's eight important circumstances to the present case, the fact that the driveways in question had been used by the plaintiff or its predecessors in title since the 1960s, when the respective properties were developed, that the driveways were permanent in character, being either rock or gravel covered, and that the defendants were aware of the driveways' prior uses before they purchased parcel B would tend to support an inference that the parties intended easements upon severance of the parcels in question. Although the prior uses which the plaintiff seeks to continue existed during the common ownership of the parcels in question, under circumstances where the defendants were fully informed by physical appearance of their existence, the defendants, nevertheless, argue that there are two factors which overwhelmingly detract from the implication of an easement, that the claimant is the conveyor and that the claimed easement can hardly be described as necessary to the beneficial use of the plaintiff's properties. Relying on the principle that a grantor should not be permitted to derogate from his own grant, the defendants urge this court to refuse to imply an easement in favor of a grantor unless the claimed easement is absolutely necessary to the beneficial use and enjoyment of the land retained by the grantor. The defendants further urge this court not to cast an unreasonable burden over their land through imposition of easements by implication where, as here, available alternatives affording reasonable means of ingress to and egress from the shopping center and the apartment complex allegedly exist. While the degree of necessity required to reserve an easement by implication in favor of the conveyor is greater than that required in the case of the conveyor, even in the case of the conveyor, the implication from necessity will be aided by a previous use made apparent by the physical adaptation of the premises to it. Moreover, the necessity requirement will have a different meaning and significance in the case involving proof of prior use than it will in a case in which necessity alone supports the implication, otherwise proof of prior use would be unnecessary.
Thus, when circumstances such as an apparent prior use of the land support the inference of the party's intention, the required extent of the claimed easement's necessity will be less than when necessity is the only circumstance from which the inference of intention will be drawn. While some showing of necessity for the continuance of the use must be shown where a prior use has been made, to the extent that the prior use strengthens the implication, the degree or extent of necessity requisite for implication is reduced. As one treatise concludes, if a previous use is continuous and apparent, an easement may be created by implication even though the need for the use to be made is not sufficiently great to meet the test of necessity as applied in the absence of such a previous use. Hence, the test is phrased in terms of reasonable necessity rather than in terms of unqualified necessity. A use is necessary, it is often said, when without it no effective use could be made of the land to be benefited by it. Where, because of a continuous and apparent previous use, the test of necessity becomes that of reasonable necessity, it is said that a use is reasonably necessary when it is reasonably convenient to the use of the land benefited. In fact, however, reasonable necessity too is a flexible test. The more pronounced a continuous and apparent use is, the less the degree of convenience of use necessary to the creation of an easement by implication. Emphasis added to American Law of Property Section 8.43 A.J. Kasner at 1952. Professor Powell suggests that in a case with proof of prior use, the word necessity should be replaced by the phrase important to the enjoyment of the conveyed quasi-dominant or quasi-servient parcel 3R Powell, the Law of Real Property Section 411 2 P. Rohan ed. 1987. P. 553. Elements of easements implied from prior use t. He authorities agree that the degree or extent of necessity required to create an easement by implication differs in both meaning and significance depending on the existence of proof of prior use. Hence, given the strong evidence of the plaintiff's prior use of the driveways in question and the defendant's knowledge thereof, we must agree with the appellate court majority that the evidence in this case was sufficient to fulfill the elastic necessity requirement. For the above reasons, the judgment of the appellate court is affirmed. Notes and Questions 1. Easements implied from prior use, also called quasi-easements or easements by implication, permit a use to continue after severance of one parcel into two if the prior use was apparent before severance, and reasonably necessary or convenient for the enjoyment of the severed estate. NAMN, LLC v. Morello, 867 NW 2D 545 NEB. 2015, see Restatement, 3rd, Section 2.12. The Restatement, 3rd, 